This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. This is Jamie Shanks, author of Spear Selling, the ultimate account-based sales guide for the modern digital sales professional. You are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. Also, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash marketingbookpodcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now on with the show. Today, we welcome Jamie Shanks back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Spear Selling, the ultimate account-based sales guide for the modern digital sales professional. Jamie Shanks is the CEO of Sales for Life, the world's largest social selling training program for mid-market and enterprise companies, which has trained over 100,000 sales and marketing professionals in dozens of industries. Jamie's workshops have been delivered across six continents for brands like Microsoft, Thomson Reuters, Oracle, American Airlines, and Intel. And he's also the author of the best-selling book, Social Selling Mastery. And interesting fact, he's visited every continent except Antarctica. Jamie, congratulations on Spear Selling, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for the invite. That was quite an introduction. Well, well, well. So the last time you were on, I said you visited every continent except Ant- uh, except Africa, but I recently found out you did an engagement in Morocco, and you're you're quite the world traveler, anyone who follows you on, on social media. But as it relates to this book, I met you a few years back in Boston at uh, the Inbound Conference, and it was just as Social Selling Mastery was was coming out, and you told me the story about how uh, you had a you're a skier and you'd had a a knee operation, pretty big one as I recall, and th- there was a story about how you had a deadline on that book, and you had to your wife 
sent you to your cabin uh, in the Great White North. You're up in Canada. And she, as I, as I recall, this is all I remember. Of course, I'd had an, an adult beverage. But she left you with a case of beer and some painkillers and said, get the damn book finished. <laughs> and it, not only did I write it uh, in nine days, and that was a case of Heineken, a bottle of Percocets, and a week's worth of groceries at our cottage on Lake Simcoe, but it was the framework to help me write spear selling a couple of years later. So what I basically do is I lock myself at the cottage for a week, and I, except with spear selling, I didn't have an injury. Uh, oh, so you didn't to, have to get a knee operation before didn't this because you're running operation. out of knees. So I sat at the edge of the dock with my laptop and wrote spear selling, and I'm writing another book this summer going to use the same process. Wow. Okay. Well, this is the Jamie Shanks method. Uh, don't try this at home, folks. Uh, you know, you, you you don't want to follow all the best practices, but this is what works. <laughs> this is what works for uh, for Jamie Shanks. And of course, I was very excited when I saw some of the folks that had endorsed it, authors that I've had the honor of interviewing, uh, like Mark Hunter and Trish Bertuzzi and uh, Dave Matson and Anthony Anarino. So I was very excited to to find out about this one. Now, every episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is always a first-time listener, and they want to hear about marketing. So if anyone's wondering why the Marketing Book Podcast has a book about sales on, well, first off, we do it all the time. Uh, second off, the most successful marketers have a deep understanding of the sales process, and they also understand the importance of um, aligning uh, marketing with sales. But also, as a marketer, I read a lot of great books about content marketing, which largely tell you how to do it. And uh, we've had some really good ones on the podcast. But when I read a sales book, I get such great ideas about the type of content that would be helpful for the sales team, for the sales process, most importantly, um, for the buyer. Now, before we go on to spear selling, I do want to step back and talk uh, just for a minute about your other book, Social Selling Mastery. And I should uh, fully disclose that at one point in our city, we had an event downtown all about your book. <laughs> so that's amazing. Yeah, and it was it was very popular. You know, sales and marketing alignment and social selling, two of my favorite. Um, topics. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, at the end of your book, Social Selling Mastery, you talked about the importance of this sales and marketing alignment. Briefly, why is that? Why do you argue that's so important? And keep in mind, Jamie's a sales guy, okay? He's not some marketing guy saying this. Well, I think it's really important because let's look at it from the context of a business. Businesses make money through sales bookings that turn into revenue, right? One of the biggest challenges is, and again, I'm a seller who's had to learn marketing for my own entrepreneurial business. But as I then worked with chief marketing officers and companies, they were so focused on what they can control and what they're being measured against, which is around creating sales accepted leads, maybe even sales qualified leads. So the team and their demand generation counterparts spent all this money and energy in the creation of leads. And then they would hand off these leads and it's like a project was completed. The challenge is that's not what was necessarily moving the business. Now, it's an influence to it. Of course, great sales accepted leads turn into sales qualified leads, opportunities, and revenue. But there wasn't this accountability to ensuring that the lead flow coming from marketing to sales 
would ultimately as we'd be all on one team called team revenue and the the sales leaders weren't looking at marketing as that resource to a percentage of their sales quota attainment. And so I would constantly sit down with sales leaders and I'd say, what percentage of your sales quota attainment did you think marketing was going to deliver today? And then their eyes would roll and they'd say, well, I don't know, none, 5%, 10%. <laughs> there wasn't this, hey, marketing is a huge driver of my sales quota attainment. And uh, anyway, so that's where it began. And I just would go into these business to, these businesses and see that marketing and sales weren't even living in the same city or the same country. So their communicate it all started at co- the communication levels. They just weren't. They didn't even see themselves as team revenue. Mm. Yes, and now I've never done this before while entering an, interviewing an author. Uh, about their book, but quoting from an earlier book. But I've just got to read from the very last page of Social Selling Mastery, where you said you were looking back, and you said that the biggest revelation hit your company in 2013 when we recognized that sales professionals were a portion of the buyer interaction and can only succeed when partnered with marketing. Over the last three years, we've dedicated more man hours to improving sales and marketing integration than any other element of the social selling mastery program. I truly do believe that social selling is simply the byproduct of effective sales and marketing integration. I also believe that solving this challenge will become the most important topic for companies over the next five years. You can bet that we intend to be on the forefront of this Herculean endeavor Jimmy Shanks, real quick, before we move on, rather than asking you what is social selling, what is social selling not? It seems like there's so many misperceptions of what it is. What it is not, and the ultimate misperception, is it is correlated to a platform. What social selling is not, it is not LinkedIn. It is not Twitter. What it is, is a process to help your seller and buyer align to become be in the deal first to shape the deal first it has only been given the name social selling or now many companies are calling it modern digital selling because it needed a name to stand out but ultimately it is just selling in the modern 21st century way and what it really is is a process to ensure that you're looking at your entire sales cycle or buyer's journey, whichever you want to look at from the framework of a marketer or the framework of a seller, and you're saying to ourselves, what are the sales plays that we can modernize and use social tools and platforms to accelerate conversations, to be bold and different in conversations? So to summarize, it is not a singular platform or even platforms. It is a way of looking at your entire process and saying, there's probably a smarter, faster, better way to do that in the year 2019. Right. Just because the boss once used the phone exclusively <laughs> to make cold <laughs> calls doesn't mean you know the, the team has to do it the same way. My very first two sales jobs, I didn't have a computer at my desk. Mm-hmm. So if I used my experiences to bring that into my 2019 sales team and I said, computers, what do you mean? I've got a pencil and a printed out sheet, call A through Z, you won't be effective in 2019. Right. And and it doesn't mean the phone doesn't still work, folks. It's just blended in with all those those other things. So, Jamie, thank you very much. Let's go on to spear selling. And 
you know, it just occurred to me, there's something about the conclusions to your books <laughs> that are just amazing. But let me first say, this book is 140 pages. Thank you for not feeling like you had to lard it up with a bunch of miscellaneous stuff. There is not a wasted word in this book. You really get to the point. And I just want to read something from the conclusion. Fishing with the proverbial spear, account-based, is unquestionably a more difficult sales motion than a net open account focus. Many open account sales professionals will field inbound inquiries as part of their lead mix and nothing makes a sales professional smile like an inbound lead. When I wrote Social Selling Mastery in 2016, the focus of social selling at that time was centered around being both a magnet for inbound leads and opportunistic in your outbound prospecting for growing sales organizations. Being a magnet in a territory is not enough to reach sales quota attainment. Sales professionals have to complement this motion with account-based focus, whether outbound prospecting for new accounts or upselling, cross-selling the existing account base. So Jamie, quickly explain what account-based sales is as if you're explaining it to the person who just sat down next to you on the flight to Zurich <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and you've handed them a book. Well, I can almost give the context of what had happened. So social selling became a, a even a word in late 2011, early 2012. We developed the first curriculum on the topic by the end of 2012, and it really became commercialized in the market in 2013. So by 2016, we wrote Social Selling Mastery, which was creating all kinds of opportunities for sellers. But to that point, it wasn't enough. It was about sharing content. And it was like it was a true blend of a sales and marketer together. Here's the challenge. As our customers evolved and became larger and larger businesses, these companies, globalized businesses, had sellers in either territories, geographic territories, or selling into verticals. So an account-based seller is someone who is either asked to select a very defined framework of number of accounts, or they're even being assigned those accounts by the corporation. Everything outside of that framework need not apply to them. So imagine being a seller in a geography. I'm given the state of Texas, as an example. That is my total addressable market, and that is all I care about. Everything inside that basket, I need to be able to segment and build a plan around. So over the last couple of years, our customers asked us to refine social selling mastery to apply to that type of seller. Now, in the global customers that we serve, in primarily technology and telecom companies, that is the vast majority of sellers. The open-based sellers, many open-based sellers have now been moved into inside sales roles called SDRs, BDRs, LDRs. They're basically not Which only- Which is uh, sales development rep, business development business rep. development rep, lead development rep, and they're servicing both the inbound inquiries and going after and unearthing opportunities anywhere that they can that meets their ideal customer profile. But they're eventually passing those leads to the seller that lives in Texas or the seller that sells only to the airline industry. Mm -hmm. And those sellers must develop their own modern digital sales process specific to their two accounts, 
20 accounts, 50 accounts. Mm-hmm. That's what Spear Selling is built for. That's great. And it also brought to mind, as soon as I found out about the name of your book, Spear Selling, it brought to mind the book by Aaron Ross, who co-authored uh, Predictable Revenue and uh, wrote From Impossible to Inevitable. And he talks about, you know, there's, there's three kinds of lead generation activity companies need. Seeds, nets, and spears. Seeds being all the established uh, relationships you have, your happy customers, your vendors, and so forth. Spears is what we're talking about here, which is account-based, fishing with a spear. And then nets is marketing generated. Too many companies are just doing one or the other, or they jump straight to the nets (laughs) without doing what I think are the first two um, that are more important. But uh, I've seen this time and time again where people are fascinated with the platform. You know, what what tools are you using? That's great, Jamie Shanks, but what tools should we buy? And the problem is that when tools are not seen as an adjunct to a process you already have. <laughs> it's like buying a gym membership and then not going to the gym and then wondering why you're not getting in shape and losing weight. So you mentioned that one of the, you hoped one of the biggest takeaways from your book was that for this account-based strategy of going after business, you hope that people understand that they need to be process-centric and not platform-centric. My, when I read that, I stood up and saluted I got the sense that you are answering that question or having to explain that probably more than you should. Correct. This is LinkedIn Navigator is the ultimate accelerant inside a business development process. Okay, I'm going to frame the problem, and then I'm going to, and then I imagine we're going to talk about probably the most important part to spear selling around account selection. But are you reading my screen here? Because that was no, the next no, one. No, 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 no. <laughs> Just kidding. No. I, I even talk about this analogy in the book. And yeah. I use the analogy of the automobile or the, of the car because it's a, a very common one. Mm-hmm. Here's a, you're a chief revenue officer and a chief marketing officer. We're all on team revenue. Where you, tr- you look at the problem, you say, my sellers are always late for work. That's the problem. We're not creating enough pipeline. I need to solve Um, I need to create a mechanism for them to get to work faster. So here's what you ended up doing. You turned to sales operations and marketing operations, and they just did a deal with LinkedIn for LinkedIn Navigator licenses, and you ended up buying everybody a Porsche 911. And then you patted yourself on the back and went, woohoo, I've got a Porsche 911 for everybody. Here's the problem. You start seeing the usage reports, and you can't figure out why about half to 75% of the team isn't driving their portion to the office every day. Well, there was the 20% of the sellers who were so happy to not take the subway anymore and they're driving the Porsche and they love it. But then you have another 30 or 40 or 50%. You forgot to ask, you know what? They didn't know how to drive a manual transmission. And you know what? They find it even more cumbersome than just sitting on the subway. And then you've got another 20 or 30% who actually thought the subway was a better mode of transportation than the Porsche, and they keep leaving the car in the driveway. That is the thinking uh, platform-centric. You took the Porsche, you ran with it. And then what did you do? You asked LinkedIn to show you how to use the Porsche, so they got you to read the user manual, open up the boot and the bonnet, show you where the glove box is. None of it taught you to run hot laps around the Nurburgring in seven minutes. <laughs> None of them taught you to be a race car driver. So now think through the process again. You say to yourself, I need to get everybody to work on time and faster. You develop a process for it, and only until you've developed the process 
you then find the accelerant or the tools that achieve the process. LinkedIn is just a mechanism to achieving a sales objective. And when you design the process first, then you apply the tools, and then you coach towards all of this. That's where the effectiveness happens. Jamie Shanks, you just saved listeners tens of thousands, if not millions of dollars with that advice. And there was one line of many in the book that I, I want to carve in stone, and it was when you said technology should be an accelerant, not the fire. 100%. Yeah, I hundred percent believe this because I have watched. I have. I'll tell you a real life story. I even talk about it in the book. We had a global customer uh, as we were looking at deploying, and this has happened now dozens of times. We're deploying a program, and they, as they, their sales enablement team starts doing an analysis, who's going to go in the program, the whole bit. They'll discover that there will be hundreds of thousands of dollars of LinkedIn Sales Navigator accounts that have been sold to people that don't have a LinkedIn account. So, and 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 that is not the fault of LinkedIn. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is this, one of the single greatest sales accelerant tools you could ever buy. But imagine you all you did is you went tool, you, you went tool set before you went mindset and skill set. And I think that's a wrong order of operations. Well, it is, and you've seen the carnage <laughs> and the waste that has happened. And I remember in Carlos Hidalgo's book, Driving Demand, he talked about companies that basically say, "Look, we got two Ferraris in the parking lot, and and we can't, we don't even know how to drive them. They'll buy all this technology and all these suites of various types of uh, software, and it just sits there. And they it, they learn that lesson, but man, that is expensive tuition. Yeah. So. Explain, again, this is like, um, I want to ask you to explain why account selection is the single most important element of any account-based selling program. And again, it sort of surprised me that you said that because I think people want to jump right into the the tactics, the gizmo or whatever, and it's sort of a ready-fire-aim sort of thing. And that was... Uh, a, a revelation, and it just seems like it must test your patience trying to explain to companies, whoa, slow down there, partner. <laughs> Let's focus on the account selection before we get to any of this other stuff. Well, I'll tell it in a real-life story to frame it for everybody. Here's what I'd like you to do, the listener. You're a chief marketing officer. You're a VP of marketing. Maybe you're a sales leader. I did this at a sales kickoff this year. Uh, So I'm the keynote, and we're talking about the importance of account selection. And I call upon an account executive to come to the front of the podium and explain to the team his top five accounts that he's going to focus on for the first half of 2019. Now, I want you to think about this for yourself. You may have a sales cycle that could even be nine months, 12 months, 18 months long. So that means the accounts that people are focusing on today as we record this, all of a sudden what ends up happening is if they don't win those and never win those, those become wastage for the whole year. So here's what ended up happening. Person comes to the front of the room and uh, so what are your top five accounts you're working on right now? He says, well, I'm working on the health and wellness space. And one of the accounts that I'm focused on is Peloton, the stationary bike company. Oh, that's a fantastic brand. 
tell for the audience why you selected Peloton as one of your key accounts. He sheepishly turns his eyes, diverts his eyes over to the corner where the chief revenue officer is sitting, and he said, well, uh, my chief revenue officer rides a Peloton every day as exercise before work, and he told me he thought it would be a great account for us to win. I'm going to pause for a second. You can imagine my face as I'm standing on stage, but guess what? I've heard this story about a thousand times. What happens is sellers in a territory, and this this is a failure at the corporate level because I have seen like a hundred companies where the named accounts assigned to the seller have been predetermined by people who didn't understand relationships are one of the single greatest drivers to winning deals. So here's the problem. Accounts have been assigned or selected by the seller because of what we call wallet share based thinking. That means what they did is they thought, who's the biggest, baddest, coolest companies in my market? They pull up the Inc. 5000 list. They they look up companies by market share. They look up companies by employee size and revenue count. At not one point of those is that what we call an asymmetrical competitive advantage. I mean, a disproportionately large competitive advantage. So they didn't take a moment to think, Instead of me just focused on the biggest companies in the market, what if I actually reverse engineered? Here's the alternative to it. We called this social proximity Mm -hmm. thinking. And we use it as a framework called the sphere of influence. Instead, what I do is I take all of the customers I've already won, my advocates, and I reverse engineer who do they know? Who are they connected to? Who have key executives of ours that have moved on to other businesses? Where have they landed? Those are my asymmetrical competitive advantages that no competitor can take from me. They can't take my relationships. So what if I cross-referenced and mapped all that? What it does is two things. One, shortens sales cycles. Two, dramatically increases opportunity open and conversion because you are now leveraging your past successes to help you in your future endeavors. This simple methodology called the sphere of influence, game changing around your account selection process. Absolutely. And it's for me was one of the biggest takeaways from the book. And so when you say what's interesting is when you say that they can't take that away, that's a moat. You've actually got connections or relationships in there that you might be able to use to form as a sort of a beachhead uh, to get into the account. And it brought to mind two things. One was in the book by Mark Roberge called uh, The Sales Acceleration Formula about the first six years at HubSpot when he was head of sales and uh, the challenges that they had and trying to figure things out. And he he had no experience in sales. He was an engineer. And uh, what they did as it came to recruiting salespeople is they reminded readers, the most successful salespeople, not necessarily looking for jobs all the time. (laughs) So what they did is when they got their own salespeople, they would then go through they would, he would sit down with his salespeople and go through with them their LinkedIn connections to find salespeople that they could then start to recruit. And it was, it was very similar to what you're describing here. But wait, there's even more. One of my uh, VMI classmates, a guy that I later served in the Army with, uh, Jim Hickey, he l- stayed in the Army and he later helped lead the capture of Saddam Hussein. Stay with me. There's a point here. What they, what he was, he was the brigade commander at that point in the hometown of Saddam Hussein. So, what they started doing is they were capturing, capturing all the bad guys. 
and they didn't they didn't learn this in the army, but they figured it out quickly. When they would capture some bad guy and take him in, they would then find all the pictures in their homes, like a picture of a soccer team or pictures of a wedding, something like that. They would then take those pictures back and say, who are all those people? And they started setting up this massive wall to figure out who was closest to the Saddam, the ultimate guy they wanted to capture. And it was, uh, there's actually an article in Slate Magazine, which I'll include in your your show notes. But it was, <laughs> it was the same thing. It was like, follow the people, follow the relationships. And uh, you'll start to, to hone in on that, that type of thing. We have won, like, we have won deals three to four times through one VP of sales. And in fact, we're closing a deal this afternoon. I am the keynote at their event in two weeks. And it was a global customer of ours at Kofax Lexmark for two to three years. And a marketing leader left and moved on to a new organization. And the first initiative, and this is important for everybody, uh, one of our customers, they called this the 60-day window of opportunity. I've always thought of it as more like 90 days. But ultimately, when a new executive leaves one of your customers, goes somewhere else, they want to bring in the people, the process, technology that made them successful in the past. It was the first initiative that she brought into this new business. We won it. Our sales cycle, I mean, it was cut in half because of this advocate. Mm. So that's the whole area of social proximity and sphere of influence. Start with the relationships. I mean, you, you can bang your head against the wall. People will continue to do that. But why don't you start with people that might have an inkling of uh, knowing who you are and, and trusting you and, and, and maybe even liking you. But let's move on to a couple other things I wanted to ask you about. One is, explain what you mean when you say that sales professionals are too often not acting like they are the CEO of their own territory. And this is this is an exercise that would infuriate your marketing listeners because it's because you as a marketer know it as ideal customer profile. Mm-hmm. So you get a sales professional who's been assigned a territory, okay, an account-based seller. And again, that could be geography or that could be verticalized. But here's what ends up happening. You ask them, what are all the accounts in your total addressable market? Again, we'll use the state of Texas. And you'll get that blank look on their face. So you as a marketer are thinking, how how do I know who to market to? Like, how is there a thousand accounts? Is there 1,500? Is there four? What is our total addressable market? This is the first thing. If you ever read a business plan, and when you get past the executive summary and you get to like page three or four, if you can't define the total addressable market, a VC or a private equity firm would throw out that business plan. They just say, okay, meeting's over, you're done. I, As a VP of sales, I would say the same thing. If your sellers haven't built you, at the, especially at your SKO and even for your next QBR, if they can't build you a TAM or a territory, uh, 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 total addressable market map of their territory. Uh, what are they doing? That's how a CEO thinks. A CEO thinks about this is the total market. Now let's segment existing customers, previous customers, active opportunities, accounts we've never spoken to, accounts with high competitive uh, threat. You know, the, and I can get into that all day long, but. All of that should be mapped before you start engaging customers. Yes, and I would recommend 
people read Malcolm McDonald on marketing planning. He's been a CEO, and he argues that any board member of a company that can't answer these two questions should be sacked immediately. And it's like uh, you guys are two peas in a pod. And he explains how in a marketing plan, there's really only two questions you need to answer. The first one is, what are your key target markets in order of priority? And within each of those, what are your sources of differential advantage? And he likes to say, you notice, marketers, I didn't use the word digital. <laughs> I didn't even use the word marketing. But, Jamie, let's go back to something that you touched on earlier, and that was about buyer journeys. And I think this is going to be of interest to the marketers, particularly as it relates to content. You are not as keen, if I may say, on, on buyer journeys as you are on learning paths. Explain the concept of learning paths. I was not aware of this, but I love it. And shouldn't have to explain what a buyer's journey is, but what ends up happening, here's the challenge for an account-based seller. Marketing starts to deploy assets to a like-minded group of people. So the, uh, you know, as HubSpot would classically call it, awareness, consideration, decision. Uh, in my book, so, uh, Social Selling Mastery, we called it the why, the how, the who. Mm -hmm. But they start deploying assets to like-minded groups of people because of the stage that they're in, because of the size of the company they're in. But it didn't actually get down to the individuals who make buying decisions. So an account-based seller, remember, you're only focused on 10 accounts, maybe even only one account. Let's focus on the one. And inside one account has a buying committee. That buying committee is made up of five, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people. Each one of those people, and this is where I think it aligns to the book, The Challenger Customer, they call it the spinning plate theory, meaning if you asked every one of those buying committee members to put a plate spinning on their finger like a basketball, each one of those plates is moving at a very different speed and velocity. You know, Some are about to fall on the floor while some are moving uh, nicely. The responsibility of the seller is to think through why everybody's plate isn't spinning. And really, it comes down to problems. There are three fundamental problems you're facing in a buying committee. You're facing either people uh, are just on their status quo, like they just don't want to change. Fat and happy. Yeah, exactly. Number two, uh, the number two person is somebody who thinks that this is so damn simple. Why can't they do it themselves or with internal resources? And then there's person number three who sits there and is so – this seems so convoluted or this seems so complex. They can't see how this all interconnects and they get to where they want to go. Um, and so I apply these principles to sharing ideas and best practices and content to individual people, to either push them off their status quo, um, wrap the people who think it's too simple, wrap their brain in a bit of a mental pretzel to make them realize the whole is greater than the sum of its parts here. There might be, there might be things you haven't been thinking about. And then for the person who's so, this seems so overwhelming, you, you simplify it into baby steps, into processes where they go, oh, well, that, that doesn't seem so daunting. So ultimately, you're focused on individuals, not on buying groups. Mm -hmm. And you call those, you should get full credit for this, one of them is called the dead zone, which is the person that says, I'm happy sticking with the status quo. You know, And uh, I just loved it because it brought so many ideas. First off, when we were talking about the book here in the office, 
we had very specific people we knew that we'd worked with that described the, 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 what you had, described them to a T. I'm happy sticking with the status quo. I almost don't want to know about the problem. You call that the dead zone. And it's almost like, how can you, it's almost like a dunking booth at a carnival. How can you throw that ball to get them you know, off their perch? And there's so many great opportunities for that in, in content. And then for the people that say, I'm completely confused, I'm overwhelmed with complexity, uh, I'm not clearly seeing what the end result will be, and I think you call it the forest for the trees problem, you call that the, the solution is the yellow brick road. Why yellow brick road? And I I use the Wizard of Oz in a multitude of analogies, but I often say, okay, so imagine Dorothy lands uh, at the very beginning of the Yellow Brick Road. If somebody had have shown her what Oz looks like in the future and then showed her that if she just took five steps forward, and then five steps more forward. Remember, you've aligned her to the goal. Now she's seen the goal, and you've given her these milestone markers. It doesn't seem so daunting. And I've heard I'm not a marathon runner. I've been told marathon runners do the same thing. Hey, just concentrate on the next 500 yards, then the next 500 yards. That's And the people – actually, and a great analogy for this is my business partner and I are very two different people. I'm a, I'm a clouds-based thinker, meaning sell me at 30,000 feet. Do not show me the details. You'll bore me to tears. My business partner is the opposite. If he doesn't see how everything interconnects, the whole thing you just showed him falls apart. So you've just got to take small steps and show how one connects to the next and connects to the next, connects to the next. And it all starts to make sense for them. Right. You mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk refers to those two worlds as clouds and clouds dirt. And dirt. Yeah. I love it. I, had, I, I haven't been following him like I should, uh, but I, I, I love it. I was going to say in the last persona, uh, the solution that we created is imagine somebody – and this is – I'll use it into my world. I'll have sales enablement leaders or sales operations leaders that say – Social selling. I've got so I've got me some of that. I've bought link. I've bought LinkedIn Navigator for everybody. Oh, you know, and they gave us free training, and and I cobbled together some stuff off the internet. Why do we need to hire you? So those are the people. Those are that's the buyer persona that. And I say it in the book. They, I loathe the most. Oh, I know you. You don't spare them, and, no. and uh, you, you spoke to me too. And it's sort of I, what it made me think was there must be some folks out there that said we don't need to hire sales for life. I just bought everybody a copy of uh, Jamie's bo- both of his books. Now go oh, read them. If were, and if it were that simple, I would just write books. That's right. all I would do. But the, here's the reality: you have to help them, and I call it the mental pretzel. And it's basically help them understand the cascading effect of one simple decision and what it means to all these pieces. You have to show them the big picture, the ecosystem that it's affecting. And and that's where when people, when they think social selling is a platform and you show them that it's an actual ecosystem and a process, you help them realize by you simplifying this one thing, you haven't thought of these 10 other things that are bigger than the one thing. Yeah. Mm. So let's transition over to a discussion of storyboards, which, you know, full, full admission, I hadn't thought of doing this, and it just blew me away. Explain how you use uh, actual storyboards to develop your sales plays, and maybe you should explain what a sales play is as well. Sure. 
Storyboarding uh, is very simple. This is how books and, and movie scripts are all created. And, and think of it, and maybe it's because I'm such a visual learner. If I'm going to write a chapter, and actually see, if you ever see uh, how Jeffrey Gittimer writes his books, he actually pastes the chapters on the wall and he looks at them as if they were, at, you know, scenes in a movie kind of thing. So a storyboard is Descri- is describing storyboarding a sales play. A sales play is um, like a campaign or um, a program or an end result you want to achieve with a customer. Let's make this tangible. A, a sales play is I want to drive people to a live event because this live event has the highest conversion for leads and opportunities of executives in our market. That's what the play is going to be about. So what I'm going to do is back up and design the touch points and the cadence and the sequence. That means uh, the number of touches, the time between the touches, all the different types of touches to achieve this one play. The play is about getting people to the event. So I'm going to apply paid media against it. We're going to make a video. We are going to send everybody invites uh, and put them uh, in a LinkedIn point drive and an uh, evite. All of that is for a play. And so storyboarding means sellers who are trying to sell to key accounts back up and think through a couple of these plays that you could execute over 30 days, 60 days, 180 days, whatever it is. Design it in advance so that you're not saying the same boring crap to executives over and over again that are kind of meaningless. You're actually going in and deploying value on your touches because you've built out this game plan of of, of, of a story you're going to tell people. Was it – did you mention Pete Carroll in the book about – or some other NFL coach who said, you know, I just plan out the first 25 plays. And and that gets me going. Well, and and actually, that's famous in uh, was famous for a couple NFL coaches. Uh, there's Mike Shanahan, an ex Denver Bronco coach, would actually script the first 15 plays, which okay. is essentially the first drive to drive to maybe the second drive. Everything else after that is is unplanned. Um, but for most sellers, what they ended up doing was scripting the first down of the game. Mm. So they have touch point one and they've got this one email campaign that marketing and sales came together and they put together and they use it and deploy it. And then after that, there is no difference in every other touch point. It's like the same message being told seven times. There's no other play. Well, you've got to think through, and there's so many different plays that I talk about in the book and I show examples that companies have used to completely changed their pipeline because they sat back and designed something unique. Mm. Well, Jamie, if the concept of storyboarding is so widely used in sports and television, books, uh, movies, why are sales, what's keeping sales and marketing teams from using it more often? For sellers, uh, specifically, they're lazy, uh, path of least resistance. That's the easiest way to say it. Uh, for marketing, marketing, you're, you're almost accustomed to doing this. You're just – the alignment between you and sales just aren't there. So you, you didn't even know that the sellers wanted to do this. A seller I, – I, be a seller, and the, the, a seller wants to do the least amount of work to get make the most amount of money. That's unfortunate for our vocation, our you know our profession. 
but you know that does i'm not saying the great sellers the best sellers are doing stuff just like this but maybe this is an opportunity for you in marketing to extend the olive branch and say listen you're probably looking for key programs and campaigns to run against your accounts let's brainstorm together and come up with something unique and we'll co-develop it together because if you know if sellers develop it themselves not not only it won't look very pretty but it might not go anywhere and frankly seller didn't sellers didn't ask marketing to get involved because they thought it would just turn it it would cyclone itself into that giant marketing department and nothing would come about it and it would be all that you would end up spitting out of it is product marketing. Mm. But that's not what the customer wants. They don't want product marketing. They want ideas and market trends and competitive analysis. And they want value. And maybe the sellers don't realize that the marketing team's even thinking that way because they're just so used to branding and product marketing. Yeah. And before we get into the to the wrap-up, I, I do want to ask about one other thing. And at least for my company and many others, my biggest competition is a company called The Status Quo. We yeah. seem to lose a lot of deals to them. And I, honestly, it's the biggest competition we have and, and, and most companies seem to have. I was wondering if you could talk about what you found to be the most effective ways to grab prospects by the lapels and shake them out of their comfort zone and light a fire under their butts. I mean, talk about the the value drivers that that shift priorities and get people to wake up and start taking action? Well, for me, it's a combination of two sales plays almost smashed together. And this is what we do. The sales play, and we have a sales play, a definitive sales play for job change alerts as an example. But I'll tell you about the one that pushes people off their status quo. Uh, it's sales play number two and sales play number four from the book. Basically, it's sales play number two is about showcasing competitive intelligence. So it's comparing you versus your competitor versus best in class. And then at sales play four is called the Emerald City, which is showcasing what best in class actually looks like, but in an experiential way. It's not just telling them what best in class looks like. It's show them. Show them. It's almost like when you go to buy a home on Zillow, you can walk through virtually through the house. Mm -hmm. Customers need to experience it through things like video. So it's combining the two. And what I mean by that, here's what we do. I, I love showing people opportunity cost. One of the most effective sales plays for us is I will make videos uh, using real-life customers of theirs that they're trying to target or existing accounts that they already have. I pull it from their customer case studies, and I shoot videos to show them competitive intelligence. I map all of their competitors, and then I drop into LinkedIn, and I show the accounts that they may have already won or like-minded accounts they probably want to win, and I show them where their competitors have deep relationships uh, or have uh employees that now work at those companies where there's account risk. By me showing them tangible opportunity cost, it makes them question, oh my God, how did my team not know about this? Yeah. And and it becomes real. And that single sales play has, well, that single sales play uh, won us a $75,000 engagement at Christmas. Just, I, I sent it to the chief revenue officer and I said, here are the banks you've been trying to activate. Here are the competitors. Here are the banks where your competitors, I guarantee have a strong foothold. That next, like that next day, we were having conversations. He said, guys, if we're not doing this, 
Like, and they're, they're selling million dollar deals. So they said, if you're not, if we're not doing this, we're crazy. Boom. Well played, good sir. <laughs> I do it all the time. And for those playing at home, did you notice that Jamie didn't say, well, we started talking about our products or we started talking about our services. We started talking about ourselves. No, these are things that really got their attention. And you probably also had a relationship or some sphere of influence with that company you were reaching out to. Yeah, at the end of the day, um, I think the most important part is walk a mile in your customers. They do not care about my product or service. They don't care what it's called. They just want outcomes. And so I just showed them what, how could you achieve an outcome? That's it. Yeah. And you also talk about how, keeping it real, you said you, these folks, they want to make the company more money. They want to save the company more money, or they want to mitigate the risk of the company uh, failing, uh, causing a, a domino effect of, of future problems. I mean, it just keep going back to that. And all those things that you just mentioned point to those things. Everything else is features and advantages. If you're not talking about either making money, saving money, or mitigating risk, not, those are the only things that drive a business. Everything else, just features and advantages. Mm. So, Jamie, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? From Specifically from spear selling, I think it's around the, the mindset. I, I would say take away the mindset of how you're going about business development. And putting... Uh, I love to look at uh, at sales leaders and marketing leaders as investors. And you have a multitude of ways of growing your business. You can grow by increasing headcount, throwing tools at the problem. I want us to think about more yield and throughput per the seller we have. And there's a, there's a smarter way to business development. You don't need to increase costs. You just apply techniques that are going to unearth opportunities uh, in a more efficient way. That's what I want them to get away from this. Mm, well said. Well said. And also, think about the process before you start trying to open the wallet up to buy a platform. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading now that you've <laughs> finished your second book? I, you know, so I have a goal. I, have, I try to read 52 – sorry, I'm a listener of books. I'll admit that. Um, I try to listen to 52 books a year. It's my, my little goal for myself. And one that I'm really enjoying, I'm in the middle of, I think it came out last year, The Excellence Dividend by Tom Peters. Oh, uh, yes. I remember Tom, hearing about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Tom Peters was an ex-McKinsey leader, spun out on his own, and it's really about customer experience, and it is an incredible book. Oh, yes. And uh, he's an institution and has had so many, so many great books. Yeah. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your newest book? So from uh, Jamie Shanks, uh, contact me on LinkedIn. My company is salesforlife.com. Happy to speak to you around modern digital selling best practices. And then from a book standpoint, it's on Amazon and all the formats, whether that's Audible's Kindle, hard and soft cover, it's all there. Wherever fine books are sold. So we'll include links to your site, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter handle, and all the other things that you've mentioned, all the other things that are linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com so that listeners can 
reach out to you and connect with you and thank you for being a guest. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you have subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Spear Selling, the ultimate account-based sales guide for the modern digital sales professional. The author is Jamie Shanks. Jamie, thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you so much for the invite. And that closes the book on episode 224 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Rohit Bargava to the Marketing Book Podcast for the fourth time to talk about his book, The Non-Obvious Guide to Small Business Marketing Without a Big Budget. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Sean Armstrong. This month, I'm in London, Geneva, Warsaw, Poland, Dubai, and then like a scattering of U.S. cities just in April. I appreciate the opportunity to interview you. Thanks for stealing a few minutes here. Although this podcast is in 150 countries, so hopefully you'll run into somebody that's heard it. Perfect. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.